From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, September 7th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Today, disappointing job numbers spell economic trouble, not just here, but in China, too. We visit one Chinese factory city hit especially hard. Also, why militants in Nigeria are attacking cell phone towers. And later, they sure know how to party with fermented fish in one Swedish town. Yeah, and, and I was there to party with these people up there, and it was, it was fun, uh, but it smelled horribly. They're sitting in a big hockey rink, and people really do party and eat a lot of really smelly uh, and pretty disgusting fish there. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery, Kenneth Branagh stars as brooding Swedish cop Inspector Kurt Wallander. He has a new relationship, a new sense of possibility, and three chilling new cases with devastating effects. Don't miss a new season of Wallander, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The Labor Department said today that U.S. job creation slowed down in August. That puts more pressure on President Obama and other policymakers to come up with new ways to stimulate the economy. Well, officials in China are feeling similar pressure. Two surveys out this week say China's manufacturing sector is shedding jobs. That's partly due to lower demand from Europe, to rising costs in China, and a stronger Chinese currency. Few places have been hit harder than the factory town of Dongguan. That's in Guangdong province. The world's Mary Kay Magstead went to a garment-making district there. In this wholesale garment market, sales girls lean on piles of clothes and chat with each other. There aren't many customers. Many say sales are down 30 or 40 percent compared to a year or two ago. Ufeng Ming says her sales of kids' jeans, mostly to Southeast Asia, are down by half. She and her husband have owned the factory that makes these jeans for eight years, and she says it's never been as bad as this. Ufeng Ming says the cost of labor and fabric are going up, and China's strength in currency makes her overseas clients complain that they can't make a profit if she doesn't lower her price. So she has, and now, she says, she's barely making a profit. Not even after moving her factory to a poorer province, where wages are half what they are here in Dongguan. The pinch is being felt all over Human, a district of Dongguan with 2,300 garment factories. Hundreds have already closed. Lu Chun, the local government's point person on the garment industry, says these are tough times. She says, our industry is going through a very painful stage right now. We need to export less and sell more at home, and we have to make that change urgently. And that's not the only change Lu thinks is needed. She says, with labor costs rising, garment factories have to either automate or treat their workers better or both. And they need to make higher quality, better designed goods that can bring a higher profit margin. One company that started small in Dongguan and has now opened an office in the much bigger city of Shenzhen is trying to do exactly that. 
It's still a work in progress. The building where the offices are is still under construction. But Luo Guanyuan has big dreams for his company, Jirda Garments. He says, we want to build a relationship with our customers and offer them quality products. We don't want them to just look and say, oh, these are pretty close. We want them to think they're buying something of value. The goal is to build a brand, a brand respected in China and around the world. That's something very few Chinese companies have yet achieved. But Loa at least seems to know the path his company needs to travel to get there. He says, first, you need to be honest with other people and with yourself. You need to take a good hard look at your strengths and your weaknesses, play to your strengths and work on your weaknesses. And you have to treat your team with respect so they'll respect the brand and the brand will earn respect from customers. Which all sounds great, but this is a new route for most of China's manufacturing sector. Factories churning out toys, clothes, and shoes were content in the past to rake in profits by manufacturing cheaply and anonymously for foreign brands. They helped fuel China's double-digit annual economic growth for much of the past decade. Now, growth is at 7.6 percent, still high for most places in the world, but low for China. So, the national government just approved 25 new subway projects around the country as a stimulus move. That might bump up growth in the short term, but economists have long been warning about the limited shelf life of China's current model of growth, which favors state enterprises and state-led infrastructure spending at the expense of building a stronger consumer economy. Dongguan's government has seen the future and knows it can't be like the past. The district of Human may remain a center for garment sales, but it hopes for higher-end designer fashions and. Dongguan is reaching for something more. After years of great effort, this slick promotional video is for a new innovation park on the banks of Songshan Lake. It's pleasant and green, and has started to attract established companies and startups. One person working here is Shui Liang Huang. He used to help Japanese investors set up factories in Dongguan. Now he's CEO of a biopharmaceutical startup looking to produce a cure for diabetes. I ask if he thinks this innovation park could become a new Silicon Valley for China. <laughs> he says, "I don't think that's going to happen. It's not just that Dongguan has a long way to go from its scruffy factory town origins. It's that the government still throws money at big companies that are already successful, and not at small startups where there's a risk." He says, "The government always wants to add more flowers to something that's already beautiful." But we don't get much notice from them. Back in the wholesale market, Wu Fangming sits among her piles of unsold jeans and knows she's on her own. With sales down 50 percent, I ask her, "What's her plan?" My plan, she asks. My plan is to try to ride this out a few more months, maybe a year. If orders don't pick up by then, I'll have to think of another plan. The signs are that she'd best start thinking. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad, Human, Dongguan, China. Mary Kay sent us a slideshow. It's at theworld.org. Long haul flights, including from the U.S. to China, usually include a stopover someplace. If you're traveling to Asia from Europe, that stopover is often at a hub such as Bangkok or Singapore. But those cities are losing some of their stopover business to the Middle East. 
Here's a fresh example. Australian airline Qantas has just made a major announcement. It's ending its 17-year-long relationship with British Airways and taking the plunge with Emirates Airline. That means that Qantas's so-called kangaroo route from London to Sydney will now stop in Dubai instead of Singapore. Tom Hall is London editor of the BBC-owned Lonely Planet Travel Guides. He says that the move by Qantas reflects a global change in how airlines make money. Qantas has been seen really for quite a few years now as being an end destination carrier. And what I mean by that is an airline who people get on and they fly somewhere and that's the end of their journey. But increasingly, the way that the world's airlines are developing, the real route to profit is to be a hub carrier. And what that really means is that you will bring people into your hub and you'll take them out again. So you're not just flying from A to B or indeed from B to C, but you're able to fly all over the place, the hub-and-spoke model that will be very familiar to uh, frequent flyers in the United States. Okay, so how much does Dubai stand to gain? It sounds like a lot. And, uh, And what does Singapore stand to lose? What Dubai and indeed what Emirates stand to gain from it is more people passing through their airport, their city, maybe stopping over, maybe catching a connecting flight somewhere else, and fewer people passing through Singapore and Bangkok and Hong Kong. That's essentially what we're talking about here. So how big a hit, though, is it for Singapore? Singapore as a destination, um, you know, really is a is a very, very popular stopover place already. I don't think that huge alarm bells will be ringing for it as a, as a city. What we're really seeing is a reflection that over the past five or ten years, the game has changed when it comes to the global airline business. Asia is a, is a fundamentally important destination, but the Middle East is increasingly taking more and more of that fly-through traffic, and there are benefits to them being able to do that. The Middle East geographically is very, very well situated for access to the Indian subcontinent and Africa. And, you know, these are emerging markets which are becoming more and more important and also, you know, can serve lots of different places in China. Probably one of the things that it's really being challenged on is its status as that iconic classic stopover when you're traveling from Australasia to Europe, onwards to North America, if you're coming this way on a, on a round-the-world ticket. That's the challenge. And if Dubai starts to be seen as the centre of the world when it comes to flying, and that's a title that's probably up for grabs a little bit at the moment, um, then I think there's implications for carriers, for airlines, and for passengers all over the world. To what extent, though, do you think it'll actually affect the American traveller, I mean, especially on long flights? For the American traveller, what this means on the surface is more choice in terms of flying to Asia and points beyond. You will be able to fly either through the Middle East with increasing frequency, be able to fly through Southeast Asia with increasing frequency, because certainly British Airways will need a new partner in Southeast Asia to help them with routes down to Australia. So it should mean more choice. And, you know, a little bit of competition doesn't do any harm at all when it comes to airfares. But I also wonder if this means that there are more people from the Middle East who are traveling and using Dubai's airport. There are more people from the Middle East traveling, but the real growth in air travel, though, is coming from China. It's coming from India. It's coming from Latin America. It's coming from Russia. And flights from all of these places are really starting to converge in the Middle East. That's what this is all about. One more thing, uh, Tom, since you do so much traveling yourself, have you uh, taken a flight from London to Singapore? And I wonder if you've taken a flight from London to Dubai. And if you had a, a hub that you had to go to, which one you'd prefer? 
Uh, I have flown through both Singapore and Dubai. Singapore regularly wins the best airport in the world awarded whenever you ask travellers, and I would give that my vote. It has a swimming pool if you're in the right terminal, and there is nothing better when you're on a short stopover than uh, being able to have a swim to wake your legs up. So that's the winner for me. As long as they give you a nice towel afterwards, I guess, huh? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Tom Hall, travel editor at the BBC-owned Lonely Planet Traveller Guide Publisher. He has a travel blog as well. It's called Tom Hall Travel, and he writes the Ask Tom page for the Guardian's travel section. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Speaking of long-haul flights, yesterday we told you about a really long-haul flight, the unmanned Voyager spacecrafts 1 and 2 and their respective explorations into deep space. Now, Voyager 1 is currently reaching the outer limits of our solar system before tripping deeper into the universe. Aboard both Voyagers are mixed tapes of a sort, the famous golden records featuring exemplary songs from across planet Earth. We featured some of the music, everything from Congolese pygmy chants to Glenn Gould performing Bach. We also asked you to update the playlist. One writer said on our Facebook page that the list was perfect and needed nothing. Ground control to Major Tom. Well, Melissa Spur offered Space Oddity by David Bowie, appropriately, and also pretty appropriately, we assume with a bit of tongue-in-cheek, too, Javon Smith suggested Hello by Lionel Richie. There was a small debate over whether Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana ought to be on the record, but the Voyager playlist updates that won our hearts at the world came from Albert Chang. For starters, he said, include anything by John Coltrane or Bob Marley. But his third offering might just be the best, Sun Ra and his intergalactic solar orchestra. Space is the Place is the title. It's actually the theme to a bizarre 1971 film for PBS about Sun Ra. In our imagination, extraterrestrials will be dancing along. listening to music while riding the rails. Coming up, this is The World on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The Paralympics wrap up this weekend in London. There are still plenty of medals to award, though. Last night, British sprinter Johnny Peacock wowed the crowd at a packed Olympic stadium. He grabbed the gold in the 100 meters race, beating a competitive field that included defending champion Oscar Pistorius of South Africa. It was a high-profile event befitting these very popular Paralympics. More tickets were sold for the London Games than for any previous Paralympics, and the Games have been broadcast to more people and more countries than ever before. Ed Hula is editor of Around the Rings, the magazine that covers the Olympic and Paralympic movements. Ed Hula, now that we're almost at the end, why do you think that the Paralympic Games have been pulling in such big crowds? The Paralympics have come to their home, to their ancestral home. The forerunner of the Paralympics began in 1948 in a hospital north of London, And it's a very informed population. People know about the Paralympics. They know Paralympic sport. 
And they've also had an extraordinary experience with the Olympics. So I think the combination of wanting to capture the moment to live completely this summer of sport they're having in, in London, along with enjoying uh, another round of elite sport from these Paralympians, it's really driving it all. Also, people, I would think, like Oscar Pistorius, who who lost last night, as we said, since he was an, an Olympic competitor and now a Paralympic competitor, I'm not sure how many other names people could think of, of people who uh, who were stars of the Paralympics before. I mean, people like him must bring a lot more prominence to both events. Well, it's very important to have stars like this. On the other hand, I thought it was also good that Oscar Pistorius lost his race and lost a couple of races. He still has one to go this weekend, his 400 meters in which he is favored. But uh, it shows that there's a more diversity in the in the athletes. Nobody is really dominating the field, and it's giving other athletes from other countries a chance to uh, show their stuff. Also, though, it seems that, like we're seeing events now where the difference between gold and silver is down to tenths of a second, which sounds like it's on the way to being the difference between gold and silver in the Olympics themselves. Has the level of competition in the Paralympics changed? Very much so. The Paralympics are a relatively new endeavor compared to the Olympic Games. There has only been a Paralympics in that name since 1960. And it's only in the past 10 or 15 years that the Paralympic Games, the ranks of the athletes, have have grown in number. The countries around the world are now starting to pay attention to the abilities, the talents of Paralympians and are cultivating them to perform at a high level. You think it's also going to mean uh, big sports sponsorship contracts eventually for these athletes? It will take some time before Paralympians are commercially successful with with sponsorships. Even most Olympians out of the 10,500 athletes at the London Olympics, just a handful of them will pick up lucrative sponsorship contracts. So it's a it's the same for Paralympians. wonder also, Ed, if you think that the appeal of the Paralympics will be finite given the variety of the levels of disability. I wonder if you think that audiences feel a certain amount of discomfort if the athlete doesn't look like someone who right. could be in the Olympics themselves, like a 100-meter sprint in, in the Paralympics may look a lot like in the, in the 100 meters in the Olympics, but not so with all sports. Not with all sports like bocce ball, which is uh, played for extremely intellectually disabled individuals, people who can have hardly any motion in their upper limbs. Sometimes very difficult to watch that particular sport, but for them, it's an accomplishment to be out there and competing. And that it will be one of the challenges as the Paralympics grow in the future here is how to make these sports more broadly appealing at the same time providing that great opportunity that you have to these athletes for whom the Olympics are simply not an option. Ed Hula, editor of Around the Rings, the magazine that's been covering both the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Thank you, Ed. A pleasure, Lisa. The Paralympics and the Olympic Games have kept London under a spotlight all summer long. The British capital has responded with a host of special events. London's Millennium Bridge, for instance, got its own soundscape. It's an audio installation that visitors hear as they cross the Thames between the Tate Modern Art Gallery and St. Paul's Cathedral. The BBC's Beth McLeod spoke to soundscape creator Martin Ware, and she filed this report. This footbridge is a great place to idle and take in views of some of London's most famous landmarks. St Paul's Cathedral, the Globe Theatre, Tower Bridge. 
And now there's another reason to linger here a little longer. When you leave the traffic and bustle of the riverbank behind and step out over the water, there are ghostly snatches of sounds playing out from speakers mounted on the arms of the bridge. It's a kind of magic realist, poetic, impressionistic view of this part of the river and also the historical life of uh, the banks of the river at this point in London. 1814, and ice so thick. An elephant was seen under Blackfriars Bridge. This trip from St Paul's to the Tate is a very interesting part of the river anyway. The north symbolises church, power, government, money, the city of London. And the south is more about culture. The glow, the glory of the bank, flanked with a ditch and forced out of a marsh. I noticed people when we arrived on the bridge sort of stopping slightly startled <laughs> and, and wondering, wondering where the sound was coming from. That's right. When we first switched it on, people were going, where? They were looking underneath the bridge for the choir. You also notice that people tend to congregate around where the speakers are and go into a kind of reverie, and that was the idea, this kind of meditative state. Then the more receptive to the actual content as well. Bride Lane. Distaff Lane. Tudor Street. Downstream, Puddle Dog. Wheat. Cattle, Iron Hides. I mean, I, I come from Sheffield originally, but I've lived in London for 30 years, and I've always thought the most fascinating part of London it, uh, are the amazing uh, names of the streets in the city of London. These tiny alleyways called amazing names, and you always want to know what on earth was going on in these incredible places. Skinner's Lane's become This is Eric Whittaker's Water Night. He got people from around the world, from nearly 100 countries, to sing into their laptops. And then he assembled it all into a 3,000-piece choir. And I just think it sounds incredible. I mean, it gives me shivers every time I hear it. And there are snatches as well of nursery rhymes that would be very familiar to most people. Well, a lot of them were, were associated with historical stuff. You know, of course, all the songs associated with the bells of the different churches near here. I find all that stuff fascinating, and it's all part of our... It's in our DNA, you know, it just tickles us when we hear it. When I grow rich, say the bells of Fleet Ditch. Part of the mission of this entire soundscape is to reawaken the um, pride in London. I think in much the same way as the Olympics has done. Um, it, all, it was all a bit of a surprise to me because I've always found London to be quite a hard place to deal with, you know, in terms of travelling around. Everybody's a little bit miserable generally. But this entire process of creating this soundscape has made me feel incredibly proud of London. It's an amazing place. The BBC's Beth McLeod reporting from London's Millennium Bridge, which got a lot more visitors this past summer. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, Syrian rebels spend their downtime learning how to generate international support for their cause. They understood this idea that by being sectarian and extremist, they come up, get help. And later, one Swedish town's favorite end-of-summer dish, stinky fish. 
GRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The Haqqani Network is now the most lethal Taliban faction in Afghanistan. It's carried out spectacular attacks on U.S. forces and Afghan civilians for years. But it was just today that the U.S. government officially designated the network a terrorist organization. Stephen Biddle says there are reasons for that. Biddle is professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University. Clearly they are terrorists, and everybody's known that for a long time. The the issue has always been, do we gain anything by announcing it? The the administration is heavily committed to some kind of a negotiated settlement as the main way of getting out of Afghanistan with our interests realized. And I think the issue for designating the Haqqanis as a terrorist organization is it's, it's hard to imagine a successful settlement to the war that doesn't involve them somehow. If you designate them as a terrorist group, the the argument has been that you make a settlement less likely, which in turn makes it less likely that we'll realize our interests in the conflict. Does that mean the U.S. has given up on on having them as some kind of negotiating partner? I I don't think we've given up. Uh, I think what we've done is allowed ourselves to get boxed into a rhetorical corner by the U.S. Congress in a way that's accepting a tactic that will probably make the negotiations harder, but probably won't make them impossible. Uh, explain what you mean about being boxed in a corner by Congress. Well, the, the Congress has been increasingly irritated with not just the Haqqanis, but with their Pakistani sponsors, as Pakistani-sponsored Haqqani military action against American forces in Afghanistan uh, produced a series of spectacular attacks over the course of the last year. So what the Congress basically said was, these people are bad guys. We ought to be treating them like bad guys. Why aren't we? And they finally voted a resolution that basically said the administration had to either name them as terrorists or tell the Congress why they weren't terrorists. And I suspect that part of what happened here is eventually it just became too difficult to figure out how are we going to tell the Congress that the Haqqanis are not terrorists. So we we ended up going ahead with the designation even though I think at the margin it makes the the negotiations harder. So right now, as Hillary Clinton says that the Haqqani Network is a terrorist organization, that sets into place uh, some consequences. What, What does it mean? What's the practical effect of that? There are consequences, but they're not very severe. The, the primary ones are threefold. Um, as a terrorist organization, no Americans are legally allowed to provide material support to them. This freezes Haqqani assets in the U.S., and it blocks entry by members of the Haqqani network to the United States. The trouble is there weren't any meaningful Americans providing material support to them anyway. They don't have a lot of assets in the U.S., and I don't think the Haqqanis were planning to tour the Grand Canyon anytime soon. There, there wasn't a lot of legal entry by Haqqani terrorists into the United States anyway. So what the sanctions that get uh, turned on by this announcement do is a bunch of things that, you know, pre- they, they prevent things that weren't happening anyway. So it's not clear that this really turns up the, the actual objective heat on the Haqqanis all that much. 
or gives them anything in the in the way of a real objective incentive to bargain with us in any way they hadn't before, what it amounts to is a form of name-calling. Okay, so name-calling, but uh, could they retaliate against name-calling if they wanted? Does it matter to them what Hillary Clinton says in terms of a designation of them as being a terrorist organization? Uh, I'm sure to some extent they receive this as an insult, which it is, actually. Um I suspect that they may regard it as an indication that our level of good faith in the negotiations is not as great as they might have thought. There's been some speculation that they might mistreat the one American military captive in Taliban hands, Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, who's widely believed to be held by the Haqqanis. But I think in practical terms, the the level of Haqqani violence against Americans uh, is determined by a variety of strategic calculations the Haqqanis make, probably related very closely to what their military capacity is at any given time. I, I doubt that just because of this, they would increase the tempo of their military activity very much. I think mostly what it does is it just inserts some extra sand into the gears of a negotiating process. Stephen Biddle, Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at George Washington University. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Rebel fighters in Syria struck in the capital Damascus today. They set off two booby-trapped vehicles, killing several police officers. The rebels pushed to topple the regime of President Bashar al-Assad now routinely reaches into the capital once considered beyond attack. But the rebels know that their uprising is more likely to succeed if they can generate more international support for their cause. Shira Frankel reports on what some Syrian fighters are doing to improve on that front. A small group of Syrian rebel fighters gather in this Antakya, Turkey apartment for some R&R. They chatter among themselves, watching YouTube videos of other rebel fighting units and pass around articles that have been written about the violence in Syria. This group of fighters from various units understands that no small part of their battle is taking place in print and on airwaves around the world which is why they've arranged for some PR training before they rejoin their battalions in Syria. Their aim is to make them more palatable to the West. Actually, they understood this idea that they must get help from the United States and other countries. And by being sectarian and extremist, they cannot get help. So they are trying to do something and to say something so they can get some help. That's one of the instructors. He asked not to use his real name and to alter his voice to protect his family in Syria. He says several years spent in Canada and the U.S. have qualified him to teach the rebels how to present themselves. He points to the uniquely named 111 Brigade as a shining example of how a rebel unit might appeal to the West. Their leader is Haj Muhammad. <laughs> We are a unique community of 140 fighters, he says. We are well-educated, with a mentality of Syria for everyone. In the face of what's being called a civil war, Hash Muhammad is eager to promote his unit as non-sectarian. He says it includes Sunnis, Shiites, and even Alawites. The brigade's unique name comes from the idea of equality, he says, kind of one for all and all for one. And when he sees that his audience includes female reporters, he's quick to point out that his unit also has female fighters. In videos posted online, he shows his unit handing out food to Syrian refugees and assisting them in fleeing the border. 
It's an image of the rebel forces that he says is key to defeating Assad. We are the secular people who started the revolution, he says. If the free world would support us, they'd get a free democratic country after we win. We'll create a country that can live in peace with all our neighbors. The progressive face that Haj Muhammad presents to the media is calculated, he admits, to try and encourage aid from the West. Other rebel units have resorted to courting Saudi and Qatari sheikhs for money to fund their units, he says. But that money comes at the price of having to fight by the rules of their religious Sunni backers. I haven't received a dollar from anyone, he says. And if I don't get support from the West, I may be forced to move away from my liberal mentality and follow something else. Haj Muhammad says he's had offers from wealthy Islamists to drop the women and the multi-ethnic fighting unit in return for cash. Until now, he says, he hasn't accepted it. Abdel Mahmoud used to be a fighter with Haj Muhammad's brigade, but he left after he was injured, and he's critical of what he calls the media spin. Sitting on the porch of the sunny apartment he shares with his family, Abdel Mahmoud criticizes the 111 brigade for trying to sell a progressive dream they can't deliver. He says that despite the pleasant face that Haj Muhammad shows to the West, the reality is that the fighting in Syria is becoming increasingly motivated by dangerous sectarian divides. He says that after months of believing Haj Muhammad's own PR spin, he realized that the rebels weren't fooling anyone. Syria is increasingly becoming the kind of sectarian war the West was afraid of, he says. And there's little chance anyone will believe otherwise. And contrary to the rosy spin, he believes that no one knows what will become of Syria after their civil war. For The World, I'm Shira Frankel, Antakya, Turkey. An unusual wave of attacks has been happening in northern Nigeria. More than 30 cell phone towers have been targeted. Nigeria has very few functioning landlines, so cell phones provide the key communications link. Well, today the militant Islamic group Boko Haram claimed responsibility for attacking the towers. The group is trying to create a hardline Islamic state in northern Nigeria. Sam Olukoya reports for the BBC from Lagos, Nigeria. He tells us that Boko Haram has been responsible for a wide variety of attacks in the region. They've attacked quite a number of infrastructures in the past. They've attacked the UN building in Abuja. They've attacked churches. They've attacked schools. And it seems their next target now are cell phone towers and a number of these across northern Nigeria. In different towns in northern Nigeria were attacked between Wednesday and Thursday. How are they going about attacking these towers? Well, it has taken the same pattern uh, they've used for other attacks, uh, using explosives to blow up the installation. So many of these installations were blown up by explosives. And no one can detect when they're setting the explosives? Well, the fact is that uh, you have a near state of anarchy in northern Nigeria, even though you have a massive deployment of troops in the area. But, I mean, they have so many things to protect, and uh, cell phone towers become some of the least uh, priorities, at least for now. But given what has happened, it means uh, they will have more uh, infrastructure to protect. And one of the key problems they will have is that some of these infrastructures are located in, in remote areas, so they are soft uh, targets for them to attack. And the fact remains that uh, the impact is going to be very major. 
Nigeria doesn't have functioning landlines. So if the country relies on, on cell phones and somebody's attacking these cell phones, then that person is touching virtually at the heart of the economy of areas concerned. And is that part of the aim of the perpetrators that they are trying to create more of a state of anarchy that you said already exists? They're trying to do this by downing the cell phone towers. Uh, or, or do they see this as kind of protecting themselves? If they're using cells, they are more easily found. What they are essentially doing is picking on other targets that to some extent have no bearing with what they are doing. I mean, the media houses that have been bombed, they have no bearing. So essentially, the objective will be that they want to create anarchy. They want to inflict so much damage on the economy so as to attract as much attention to themselves as possible. So if the cell phones through the cell phone towers are such a critical point of communication for Nigerians because there aren't that many landlines, is there any kind of immediate repair that can be done to see that people are able to stay in touch? Or is it uh, right now not a priority or too much to keep up with? In fact, the companies, the telephone companies are saying that if these attacks continue, they will have to pull out of the areas. I mean, I was reading an analysis today and somebody said each of these uh, towers, cell phone towers, cost about $250,000 to put in place. And we're talking of about 30 already destroyed. And if you have such expensive uh, installations with very few protection, you cannot allow somebody to go and destroy them. So it would be logical that those you cannot protect, you close them down and uh, move out of the area. The cell phone operators have said clearly that if these attacks continue, if the government is unable to protect them, then they will move out of the area. Is there a chance that this could derail the entire cell phone system within Nigeria? Yes, I think so. I mean, if you look back and realize that even police stations, even military barracks have been attacked by the Islamists. I mean, protecting cell phone towers, which are spread all over the place, it is quite a difficult thing to do. And I think that uh, the... Boko Haram sect has realized that this is something they can easily do and not just stopping the military from using the cell phones to track their activities, but at the same time sufficiently crippling the economy of northern Nigeria. Okay, thank you. Speaking to us from Lagos, Nigeria, the BBC's Sam Olakoya. Thank you. Thank you very much. For our GeoQuiz on this Friday, we're looking for a small Swedish town along the country's Baltic Sea coast. It's roughly at the same latitude as Helsinki, Finland. This is a farming community that marks the end of the summertime with a local banquet. There's no succulent duck or barbecued chicken on the menu, not even Swedish meatballs. Instead, they serve up some really smelly fish. And the taste is, is pretty peculiar. It's like eating a really, really strong cheese which smells extremely bad, um, like fish that you left in the sun for, for, for a week, basically. That's, that's, um, that's what it smells like. Well, they claim it tastes good. Even so, you may want to pinch your nose. We get a whiff of Sweden's sour herring and uncan the answer in a matter of minutes.
Global Hits also on the way on PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery. Kenneth Branagh stars as brooding Swedish cop Inspector Kurt Wallander. A new season of Wallander, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. We asked you about a Swedish coastal town with an interesting ritual in our geoquiz today. Wall Street Journal reporter Sven Grunberg has been there. He says this is a place with a centuries-old tradition of serving up an unmistakable kind of fish. Well, uh, surströmming is um, fermented herring. Basically, it's herring that is is, uh, put into barrels until the point it almost starts to rot. It comes in the salty brine that contains just enough salt not to make the fish rot entirely. And it has a pinkish meat and it smells uh, terribly. Um, and But the taste, though, isn't that bad, some argue, uh, although <laughs> I... I guess they have to argue, don't they? <laughs> I, I'd say that the taste is, is, is pretty special, uh, but but especially the smell is, is pretty horrid. Um, and um, it's something we have been eating in Sweden for several hundreds of years due to the fact that we, once upon a time, was we were a really poor country and we couldn't afford enough salt to actually salt fish to prevent it from uh, rotting over winter. So we then turned to fermentation instead. And that's ah, the process too. I see. And there is a special place for this sour herring in a small farming town where they celebrate it at least once a year. Yeah. The name of the town is Alfta. It's a farming village. Uh, but they have this huge party there every year. More than a thousand people gather to eat this together. And they just had the uh, celebration? Yeah, and, and I was there to party with these people up there. And it was it was fun, uh, but it smelled horribly. They're sitting in a big hockey rink. And people really do party and eat a lot of really smelly, um, pretty disgusting fish there. Why? Bragging well, rights? <laughs> <laughs> we keep asking people. You were correct in saying it's it's partly bragging rights. There was an eating competition there a couple of years ago when one guy ate 25 of these fishes in, I think it was five minutes. Um, oh. And then afterwards he threw up. So you, you got to um, um, kind of foster this this tradition uh, um, between the generations. Uh, but there were some young people there too, and they seemed to enjoy it. If you look at Swedish traditional food, it's pretty boring. It's meatballs from Ikea. It's uh, pretty boring stuff. But then we have this really extreme thing that we're eating that is more crazy than anything you would have find in anywhere in the world, even in, in Japan. And people eat really crazy stuff, you know. What do you wash it down with? You wash it down with Swedish aquavit, which is our uh, our special kind of vodka over here, and, and then um, also with beer, of course. So there's a lot of boozing going on as well. By the way, what, what does it taste like and smell like? <laughs> Well, I'd say a pungent combination of an unflushed toilet and pig farm. Uh, yeah, like fish that you left in the sun for a week, basically. That's what it smells like. And and the taste is pretty peculiar. It's like eating a really, really strong cheese. I mean, it's not enjoyable the first time you try it, but you have to have the right ingredients with it, of course. Traditional Swedish flatbread crackers and onions and potatoes uh, and the right setting. Thank you for that very vivid description, Sven. When did you have your first taste, and was it voluntary? Uh, it was actually voluntary. I was a kid. Uh, my dad is from an area where surströmming is very popular, so I tried it when I was seven, I'd say. And do you remember your reaction? Uh, I didn't like it. You know, I don't think no kids like it, but it's cool. You know, it's the coolest thing we have here in terms of food. So, so I, I recognized that already when I was a kid that this is something really special. Does anybody eat the surströmming before next August? 
most people don't eat it at all, but the ones who do eat it like once a year. But then, of course, you have the hardcore people, um, especially um, there's a group called the Academy of, of Fermented Herring in Sweden. The Academy and, of and Fermented these, Herring? Yeah, they promote uh, this tradition and they eat it all the time, apparently. Um, I don't know where they live, though. Um, <laughs> you don't want to be their neighbor. They probably don't have neighbors. Um, um, <laughs> Sven, thank you. No problem. It was nice talking to you. Wall Street Journal reporter Sven Grunberg telling us about the goings-on in Alfta, Sweden, the answer to our geo-quiz today. And finally, get on board the Africa Express. This week, about 80 African and Western musicians are traveling around the U.K. on an old British rail diesel train. The train serves as transportation and as rehearsal space for the musicians. They include British indie rocker Damon Albarn and Senegalese singer Baba Mal. When they're not jamming on the train, they're playing gigs at schools and hosting workshops. Helen Dofar of the BBC's Africa Service is along for the ride. The Africa Express has now been travelling around the UK for five days and has nearly reached its final destination, London. The musicians travelling on the train have been performing every night in cities across the UK. Life on board has been very relaxed, but also quite focused for the 80 musicians. As they travelled, they practised their songs for the evening concerts. One of the carriages was set up as a rehearsal space and has constantly been busy. One, two, ready, and come right up to my atmosphere. You won't have to be lonely. When the Africa Express train stopped, it was time for more music. The musicians have been attending pop-up events in community centres, record shops and schools. All of this to raise awareness and to bring African music to a new audience. The pupils at the Lady Barn Primary in Manchester certainly enjoyed it. Um, I like the beat and all the music. Yes, I really enjoyed it. Gemma Quinn, the assistant to the headmistress, hopes that it will open new musical horizons for the children. I'd love to do some some African drumming workshops now and give the children a chance to play some of the instruments that they've seen here today. Most of the English artists invited to join the train have never collaborated in this way before. Carl Barat from the rock band The Libertines told me about his experience. It's been amazing. It's been quite a whirlwind, really. Um, yeah, it's got a lot of chaos, but a lot of uh, good energy. And uh, yeah, it's been a different experience for me, learning um, just about going back to basics of music and getting together with people and not really know where, where the music's going and it becoming bigger than the sum of its parts. It's quite, um, quite an amazing thing. Johnny, the bassist for the Australian band The Temper Trap, really enjoyed working with the African artists and discovering new instruments. All the musicians just have a, such a rich wealth of knowledge of um, their instruments and there's a lot of instruments I've never seen before. And any person that sits in front of me, I just want to ask them lots of questions because they have so much like unique things to bring to the table and the way that they think about music or the style or the culture that they bring to the table is so varied from each artist and each person. So it's, it's just been, uh, I don't know, so much fun, so much fun. African music has been put in the spotlight for a week with television, newspapers and radio programs following the journey of these artists. And this is exactly what the founders of the Africa Express Collective wanted. 
That was the BBC's Alendo Farr on the Africa Express. You can get on board, too. We've got video at theworld.org. We end this week with music from Amadou and Miriam of Mali. They're also on the train. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.